several years ago, I read a fascinating article, or what I thought was a fascinating article. Tasha has told me over the, over the years that sometimes the thing you, things you think are fascinating are not as fascinating as you think they are. So, but I thought it was fascinating because it was an interview uh, with a then-campus pastor for Liberty University, which is the largest Christian evangelical university in the country. And they were interviewing him and asking him all kinds of questions about his role as the campus pastor. And one of the interesting questions they asked him, they said, hey, is the campus pastor of the largest evangelical Christian university in the country, what, what kinds of questions do you often field from students? And, uh, you know, I was thinking, if I, I thought back about that, and I thought uh, maybe he would field, you know, questions about uh, the end times and how does this all shake out and what you view on the end times. Or maybe, uh, you know, he would uh, field questions about the tension between God's sovereignty and man's free will and how do we reconcile those seemingly irreconcilable truths. Or maybe it was a, he would field the always popular philosophical question, uh, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? Deep stuff, Right. Or how about this one, my all-time favorite, uh, did Adam have a belly button? Think about that for a moment. Did Adam have a belly button? But his answer was both surprising and fascinating. Because the questions he said I fielded most often hadn't, didn't have to do with big theological issues or theological debates or philosophical issues like that. He said the most common question I field from students is simply this, how can I know if I'm really saved or not? And remember the context, this is in the largest evangelical Christian university in the nation. Let me add a little detail to that context that I think makes it even more uh, fascinating. At that time, and this sense has changed, but at that time, uh, Liberty was only admitting students who were openly professing believers. And so much so that as a part of your application process, you actually had to write out your conversion testimony. And so imagine that, the largest Christian university who only admit students who are professing born-again believers who actually write out and articulate a conversion testimony. Their biggest question was to know, how do I know if I'm in fact really saved or not? And here's my guess this morning. At all of our campuses this morning, there's also someone in the room who's wrestling with that same question. And if you have not or are not wrestling that question, there's a good chance you have wrestled with that or know someone who's wrestling with that very question right now. Well, the good news is this morning, the text we're going to look at is going to address that question head on this morning. So let me invite you to take your Bibles, your devices, and turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue our series through the book of 2 Thessalonians. If you were not with us last week, then you missed what theologians and scholars call a humdinger. That's the Greek word for it, right? We were in a fascinating passage, an incredible passage about the return of Jesus Christ. And so if you were not here, I would encourage you to get online and on our website and listen to that message that we talked through last week at the beginning of chapter 2. And so hopefully God used that message last week to bring clarity and comfort to those who uh, heard it. And what we learned last week is we're reminded that, that in general, that when the world seems chaotic... Uh, God predicted that. God prophesied that. He said, hey, in the last days, as the return of Jesus Christ grows nearer, uh, there's going to be a rise in false teaching. There's going to be a rise in false teachers. There's going to be a rise in people who fall for false teaching and who depart from the faith. Apostates is the language the Bible would use. But we, we shouldn't be 
uh, overwhelmed or fearful about that, we should actually be comforted that the Bible is in fact true, that God is sovereignly uh, orchestrating all these events and redemptive history is playing out exactly how God said it would play out. So both for the Thessalonians and for us, for those who belong to Jesus, those truths should comfort our hearts is what we learned last week about the Lord's return. But we also learned last week that there's a category of people who those truths about the return of Jesus should not comfort their hearts. That it should bring a certain amount of holy fear uh, when they look at that. And this is the people who verse 10 describes as those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Uh, the return of the Lord for them signifies a judgment that God pouring out his wrath on those who openly reject his son, Jesus Christ, uh, in salvation. Here's the only good news I can share about that reality. If a person wants nothing to do with Jesus while they're here on earth, they're going to get their wish in eternity. How loving would it be of God to say, hey, you wanted nothing to do with me on earth, but I'm going to force you to spend all of eternity with me. And so if someone wants nothing to do with Jesus on earth, then what we learned last week is they're going to get their wish granted in eternity, but it will not be the type of wish that they want to be granted. Only those who openly reject Jesus Christ, his judgment will come. Uh, but also the fact we learned there's some people who are self-deceived. And I can't think of a scarier thought than to think that you're going to heaven, that you belong to Jesus Christ, and, but then you find out on the day of judgment that you're among the group of people with whom Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, depart from me you workers of iniquity or workers of sin. Uh, I never knew you. Not I used to know you and you know we lost touch or you fell out of fellowship or you fell from grace, whatever. He says, I never knew you. And so that's a fearful thought, an appropriate fearful kind of way. And so the, here's the good news. Today, uh, you're going to see some indicators in the text that should assure you of salvation. These are not the only indicators in the Bible, but these are going to find some indicators in the scriptures today. Say, hey, if you actually belong to Jesus Christ, that you're truly saved, you're not self-deceived, then there's some things that should be present in the life of a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And so my prayer today is this, is that you leave today, if you belong to Jesus, with greater assurance and if you're here today and you're, you're deceived about your relationship with Jesus, that you live with greater clarity about that, and you too leave with the assurance of salvation. So he's going to give us some markers of salvation. All right now, I know that it's early in the service, but I've been preaching for a while already this morning, all right? So I'm fired up. So if you're listening, say amen. Here's something we've taught over and over. That when it comes to the assurance of salvation, assurance doesn't dwell in the experience, it dwells in the evidence. That the assurance of salvation doesn't come from the experience. I know I was saved because I went forward and I cried and I wrote this you know, date down in my Bible or you know, those kind of things. Listen, assurance doesn't come from the experience because the experience can be scrutinized and actually be a source of doubt. Assurance doesn't come from the experience, it comes from the evidence. And so today in this passage, we're going to see some of the evidences of a genuinely uh, converted follower of Jesus Christ. So, let's look together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 13 down through verse 17 this morning. It says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter 
Now may the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And so just a reminder, you know, we, uh, you've heard this phrase often that there's only three key words in real estate, location, location, location. Hopefully you've, we've taught you this over the years that when it comes to Bible interpretation, understanding the text, the three key words are context, context, context. And so the context of the book of 2 Thessalonians, which is important to remember, is he's writing to the church. He's writing to professing believers and he's telling them, hey, you, you don't have to be deceived about the Lord coming back, the beginning of chapter 2. You don't have to be fearful about the Lord coming back or somehow you've missed it and you're going to experience his wrath. He says, hey, if these things are present in your life, you don't have to be afraid of Jesus coming back. You can be excited because they're the evidence that you actually belong to Jesus. And that's true for us today. That these are the things we're looking for among others in Scripture. That when we think about the Lord's return, we're not fearful. We're actually expected, hopeful, and excited because these things are present in our life. Not perfectly, but there's a pattern of these things in our life. So in the text today, we're going to see two genuine characteristics of a truly saved person, right? So the first thing I want you to see in this passage is the first characteristics of genuine conversion is saved people are changed people. Saved people are changed people. One commentary said, saved people are those who've been transformed by God's grace. It's not of our human effort. It's not me turning over a new leaf, trying harder that the grace of God changes me, transforms me. And when I experience saving faith, uh, listen, let me let you know a little secret this morning. When Jesus uh, comes and, and encounters someone else, he loves them too much to leave them as he found them. Did you know that? That the idea that I was lost and separated, no relationship with Jesus, and I was unloving and greedy and materialistic and hateful and filled with anger and no joy and all those things. But then I met Jesus. But yet I'm still angry and greedy and, you know, material. Listen, the, the, the Bible teaches the exact opposite, that when Christ comes into our life and takes up residence in our life, he always changes us. And it's not instantaneous, it's a gradual process, but a saved person will always be a changed person. We talk about change, uh, it's important. We have a biblical framework for the gospel. Unfortunately, most of the time we think about the gospel and its impact, we often just think about its past and, and the gospel forgave all my past sins. And listen, I just want to tell you, I'm grateful for that. You should be grateful for that, right? I've done a lot of dumb and sinful things. And so I'm grateful for the gospel forgiving my past. I'm grateful for the future impact of the gospel. That when Jesus said in John chapter 14 that, hey, I go to prepare a place for you, that's really true. Not because of anything that I've done, but because of what Christ has promised me based on what he's done. So I'm grateful for the future hope of heaven because of the gospel. But the missing gospel gap is how does the gospel matter? How does it work in the present tense? What difference does it make? Let me just rattle off some things about how the gospel changes us in the present. In Jesus Christ, we have a new identity. Our sin no longer defines us. How good news is that? That the lie that shame tells you, that the worst thing you've ever done is also the truest thing about you, 
is not true. That in Jesus Christ, I'm not a new and improved version of me. I've got a brand new identity. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. It's not the new improved Brad. It's a brand new identity in Jesus Christ. And in that identity, everything he says about me that's true is actually true. Every lie that someone has said about me is false compared against the standard of what Jesus has proclaimed about me. Now, I just want you to understand this, all right? And this is not in my notes. It's totally free. If some of you would get a hold of this truth of the gospel and live out of your new identity, not your performance, whether good or bad, it would actually change the real life that you're living in Jesus Christ. If you'd understand your identity in Christ and live out of those truths, it would literally be life-changing. I would argue that 75% of all the counseling I've done over years has been because of a lack of understanding of who a person is in Jesus Christ. And they're not accumulation of their best days. They're not accumulation of their worst days. They are exactly who Jesus has declared them to be, praise God. And so in the gospel, Christ, I have a new identity. My sin no longer defines us. In Christ... We have new promises to lay a hold of and live out of. All those promises in the Bible, I, I couldn't lay hold of all those because the access to which I lay hold of those is through the personal work of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have the Spirit who empowers us to obey. We're not left to our own willpower. We're not left to our own natural appetites. That the Spirit of God is working inside of me to cause me to want what I would not want and causing me to obey what I would not choose to obey. That's good news because listen, let me let you in a little secret. Most of you in the room, you're little stinkers. Did you know that? Don't be deceived when you see these little kids running around the church, they're cute and running around that kind of stuff. They're just little sinners, amen? You know why your first word is often what? No, right? Because that's our nature. That's where our hearts are all pointed. But in Christ, in the present, the Spirit of God comes and lives inside me and empowers me. I'm no, no longer a slave to sin is what we sing because it's true. In Christ, we have new potential as unlimited as Christ himself. Now, when I take all those truths about the gospel, all four of those, and I realized that when I belong to Jesus Christ, all these things are true of me because Christ declared me true. Then guess what? There is no possibility that Christ can come take up residence in my heart in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And all those things are true. And yet I remain unchanged. Christ loves me too much to leave me as he found me. Now, when we talk about change, here's what I want you to understand. It's not just a change in behavior. It's not just a change in behavior. That Christ didn't come to make us better behave, more polite, more moral. Listen, that, that was the, the agenda, the plan of the Pharisees. That's moralism. You don't need Jesus for that. That when Christ comes and we talk about change, that what we're talking about is not change in the outer man, our behavior, our actions in the outer man. What we're talking about is change in the inner man. When the Bible talks about the inner man, it also uses the word heart, it uses the word mind. Those are all the same interchangeable ideas. That's the part of us that's made in the image of God. Did you, did you know that? The immaterial part, that's the part that's made in the image of God. That's what separates us from the animal kingdom. 
I've told you the illustration before, like we, we have a, we're made in the image of God, so we have moral dilemmas and moral quandaries that we're wrestling through. That, that doesn't exist in the animal kingdom. Like when food drops on the floor at my house, I don't care what it is, my dog can say, my dog never says, that's bad for me, I should not eat it. Right, you know what my dog says? I should eat it until I throw up. That's what my dog says. When a gazelle comes prancing across the meadow, the lion is not in the weeds going, oh. I swore I would never do this again, but here I go. What's wrong with me? Right? Because they're just operating on instinct. But you and I are made in the image of God. There's the, the inner man, the heart, the mind. It's the center of intellect, emotions, and volitional will. It's the place where desires and affections dwell. And we've taught this many times, but we learned by repetition. If you've never written down the addresses first, please write it down because we've taught this a couple million times, it feels like. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, let me give you a paraphrase. Above all else, guard your heart because it determines the course of your life. Here's what that means. You do what you do because your heart wants what it wants. And your heart wants what it wants because you believe what you believe. And so if you believe that something or someone will satisfy your heart more than Jesus Christ, then your heart will begin to long for that thing to the point where it becomes an idol. And that will, you will do those things to chase down that idol. And so we do what we do because our heart wants what it wants because we believe what we believe. And when Christ comes in to save me, he begins to slowly and gradually transform the affections of my heart inside out is how that works. So here's what I want you to understand. Heart affections drive behavior. Heart affections drive behavior. Say that with me. Heart affections drive behavior. One more time with Pentecostal power, all right? Heart affections drive behavior. And so when Christ comes into my life and begins to transform, reorient the affections of my heart, then there's no way that I can stay the same. I'd put it this way. Our appetites change when Christ takes up residence in our lives. Tosh and I were married 25 years this spring. And on several occasions, uh, she tells me something that I have a hard time still believing after 25 years of marriage. She tells me that when she gets really stressed out, she's like, I don't even want to eat. What? <laughs> you know what I do when I get stressed out? Kids get in the car, we're going to Taco Bell, and on the way home we're going to stop at White Castle for dessert, praise God, right? I mean, it's on like Donkey Kong, right? i just so stressed out, I... I don't, that makes no sense to me. There's never a time where I'm, or situation I'm not interested in. I'm always hungry. I'm hungry right now, as a matter of fact, right? Rest assured, listen, if I ever lose my appetite, I'm going to drop everything and go looking for it. I just get, I just get so stressed out. I, I don't even feel like eating. Well, give me your food because I'm going to eat yours and mine. Amen. That's why she's small, and I'm not as small. That's why that is. But in all seriousness, 
if you have little or no appetite for the things of God, the work of God, the person of God, the worship of God, the word of God, the people of God, to be on mission with God, if you have no appetite for the things of God and you claim to be a Christian, you should go looking for your spiritual appetite because a truly saved person will be a changed person and change always starts in the inner man or the desires or the appetites of our hearts. That's how change works. And one of the fundamental changes that begins to happen on the inside of us, a grace-empowered change that shows up when, it, when we're truly converted and belong to Jesus Christ, is there's a desire to go from being self-governed, I want to do my own thing, make my own decisions, you know, nobody tell me what to do kind of a thing, to being submissive to Christ. Is there anybody in the room who would raise your hand and say, I love, as a grown-up, being told what to do? Anybody? Yet if your hand's up, you're drunk in church, right? You know why we don't like that? Because it's not natural to be submissive. It's natural to be prideful, to, to, right, to be self-willed. And so when I belong to Jesus Christ, one of the desires that gets transformed is I no longer desire to be self-willed or prideful, that I'm submissive to Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's the supernatural work of the Spirit of God transforming the affections of my heart. Now, will that eventually show up in my behavior on the outward? Of course it will. Listen, if you say your heart's been transformed by Jesus and it never actually changes your behavior, you're only lying to yourself. But it starts on the inside heart affections and works its way out into our lives. The Bible is incredibly clear. There is no such thing as a person who's truly saved who doesn't experience some level of transformation, sanctification, change that starts on the inside. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you know this or not. Did you know that the reason God saved you is not so you can go to heaven one day? That's one of the byproducts or the benefits of salvation, and I'm super grateful for that. Hear me. But the Bible teaches that the whole reason God saves us, using the language of Scripture, is that He saves us, that He's predestined to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? The whole reason God saves me is to change me and transform me until finally and fully I'm just like Jesus Christ. That's the whole predestined plan of God in salvation now when will that happen when you get to heaven that's the doctrine of glorification justification is what we would call getting saved it's a new legal standing before God it's not I'm you know not just as if I've never sinned that's not what it means it's not uh, I'm guilty now I'm not guilty no it's I'm guilty but pardoned and the reason God justifies whom he justifies, Romans 8 says, whom he justifies, he glorifies. Past tense, predetermined course of action. That every single person who's saved will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in heaven. God's never lost a person on the conveyor belt, praise God. And so if this is true... Whom he justifies, Romans 8, he also glorifies, Romans 8, then the natural thing that has to happen in the middle, and the, while we're waiting for this to happen, is sanctification. And so here's what that means. A person who professes to know Jesus Christ and there's no appetite to change, there's no appetite for personal holiness, there's no appetite for the things of God, there's little pattern of transformation in your life, there's a low appetite for the pursuit of Jesus, that person is most likely not, uh, self-deceived. Because a saved person is a changed person because transforming, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ is the whole purpose and plan of God in salvation. So God saves us to change us is what scripture teaches. 
over and over. But don't, don't take my word for it. Look at verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, he says, but we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Why, why should we give thanks? Well, he tells you right here, because, what's he say? Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Here, here's what he's saying. He said, listen, God, God ran you down. God pursued you in love so that you could experience transformation, sanctification, and belief in the truth and be conformed by the truth. Now, Anytime, so I've been doing this for about 21 years, and any time that over the years that I use the word choose and salvation, the same sermon, I know I'm going to get some emails in my inbox the next day, right? That causes people all kinds of spiritual anxiety. I've joked over the years, said, hey, when it comes to election or predestination, if you really believe in it, you're really stronger with that, you're probably a little more Presbyterian than you realize. If you don't believe in that, you don't like any of that stuff, you're probably a little more of a free will, you're Pentecostal, something like that. If you don't fully understand the whole conversation makes you nervous, you're a Baptist. Welcome home, right? But you can't tear it out of the Bible. The doctrine of election is all over the Bible. And here in the text he says, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Other translations that are faithful uh, say this word, they replace the word first fruits with the phrase from the beginning, so those translations, your translation may read, from the beginning, God has chosen you. Now, let me let you know a little secret. There's been 2,000 years of church history, people debating these things. God choosing people for salvation, man's free will, how do we reconcile those things? It is a great mystery that uh, one writer said this, he said those are two parallel truths running on two tracks, either Spurgeon or Moody, uh, I think it was Spurgeon, said there's two parallel truths running on those tracks. God's sovereignty and salvation, man's free will, and responding to the gospel. And those tracks somewhere intersect at the throne of God. What's he saying? He said, I can't reconcile all these truths. Matter of fact, here's what makes it even harder. If your Bible uses that phrase, from the beginning, that is a reference to a period of time. God is an infinite being. What does that mean? That means God exists outside the realm of time and space. That with God, it's all in the present tense. There is no such thing as eternity past with God. He's infinite. And you say, my little finite mind cannot reconcile all these truths. Guess what? That should be a cause for worship. That the God who is so far above us, that we can't even reconcile and know everything about him Romans 11 talks about pursued us in love we don't know the motive of that there's mystery is it because of his divine pleasure he chose us is it because in his divine foreknowledge he knew who would respond to believing faith which by the way he does God knows everything there's great mystery about there but what there should be no mystery about this is simply this is that God ran you down God pursued you in love. You may not know the motive or the mystery of that, but God pursued you in love. Now, let me just stop here and preach for just a second. You know what that means? That means in your life, if you feel unloved and unaccepted and rejected and no one, like, listen, what that means is your theology is jacked up. You see, that's not a self-esteem problem. That's not a self-image problem. That's not an emotional problem. That's a theology problem. Because the Bible clearly says that the God who created all of this, who's so sovereign, who's so far above you, you can't even comprehend all his infinite ways, he ran you down in love. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell, 
Who went looking for who? God is the pursuer in salvation. God is the executor of salvation. God is the guarantor of salvation. All those things. And so, so what he says here is, hey, God went to all this effort to pursue you, to redeem you, to call you to his self. To the point that what he says is, hey, the whole reason I want to do this is because I want to transform you into the image of my son. I went to all this effort to make you just like Jesus. And so the idea that a person could truly be saved and experience no change in their attitudes, actions, affections in their life is an unbiblical thought. And so you say, well, there's a lot of debate. How do I know if I'm part of the elect? Simple, you respond to Jesus in believing faith. Here's the good news of the gospel. Everybody who runs to Jesus makes it. Did you know that? Everybody who runs. Listen, Jesus is not stiff-arming anyone. Right? He says that those who want to come to me, no wise will I cast them out. It's God's will that all should come to repentance, that none should perish. Scripture talks about two times in the, in the text. And so, but when you do come to Jesus, when you have an actual encounter with Jesus, and you think, hey, I met Jesus, I'm going I'm to hook arms with Jesus, I'm going to keep going the same way, doing the same things, the same way, same attitude, same desire, I'm just walking with Jesus, he's just making my life better. No, when you have a collision with Jesus, there is a change that will take place in your life. Saved people are changed people. God did not pursue you, choose you, so that he could leave you as he found you. And so this, what about this tension that God does this and what, what do I do? Listen, he makes change possible, but he doesn't make it uh, automatic. Go back to verse 13 and 14. He says, God chose you the first fruits. There's mystery about election. I get all that. Through sanctification by the Spirit. And there has to be belief in truth. Listen to how one commentary explained that tension. He said the Thessalonians' election by God did not nullify their responsibility to act on the truth. Paul provides a stark contrast between those who perish because they did not accept the love of the truth, verse 10, and those who are saved through belief in the truth, verse 13. Listen to this. In both cases, we make a deliberate choice either to accept or reject the gospel. In the case of those who accept the gospel, we find the mysterious tension between God's work of election past with human beings' responsibility to believe the truth present. And so when God saves me, there's a responsibility for me to continue to believe the truth and live for him. But that takes an active participation on my part. So let me ask you a question. Is there, not perfection, but is there a pattern in your life, a pursuit in your life where Christ has begun to transform the affections of your heart? Is there a pattern in your life where grace has transformed you? Where the fruit of the Spirit is more on display in your life? You're more joyful, you're more loving, you're more patient, you're more kind, you experience more mercy. There's more peace in your life. There's more long-suffering with other people. Listen, if you want to evaluate your own spiritual life, go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, and just look down at that list and say, do, do these, does this fruit of the Spirit uh, exemplify my life? Because if it does, that's not natural. That's Christ working inside of me. And by the way, if you're listening, say amen. It's all free. You may come down here and preach. It's not 
fruits of the Spirit, plural. It's fruit of the Spirit. Fruits, plural, means I can pick and choose like some kind of cafeteria line Christianity where, well, that comes natural to me, that comes natural to me, that doesn't come natural to me. Listen, the ones that don't come natural to you, those are the greatest evidences that Christ is at work in you, producing what is not natural to you. Saved people are changed people inside out, transforming my affections that shows up eventually in my behavior. Now, listen, let me give you some bad news. Um, when I preach, I don't know if you notice this, you ever see me looking up, sometimes there's a timer on the back wall, so I know how long to preach. They didn't start the timer today. Woo! Right? So as far as I'm concerned, I'm just getting started, praise God. I think the second hour of the sermon is going to be better than the first. All right, number two, and I'll, I'll hustle. I'll start talking fast. <laughs> number two, a saved person is a changed person. Number one, God chose us, and we believe the truth. There's that tension there, right? But secondly, a saved person is also an appetite to be governed by God's word. This week in my devotional time, I read through Proverbs every, every day, through Proverbs, part of my devotional rhythm. Proverbs 13, 13 this week, I wrote it down because I knew what I was preaching on. I wrote it down, Proverbs 13, 13 says this, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. You, you want to ruin your life? Disregard the word of God. That's what that means. Hey, if you're here and you're thinking, I'd like to, I'd like to jack up my life. I'd like to crash this course, right, just go off course, right? There's a promise right there. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment or the, or the word will be rewarded. I'm assuming everybody in the room wants to be rewarded by God. That's why you're at church, right? And so how do we get rewarded by God or blessed by God? Whoever reveres the commandments will be a reward. That's a promise. Let me share with you a fundamental truth that guides my life. In every single area of my life, that, that fill in the blank, you can pick any area you want. In every single area of my life, I'm operating with the deep inner conviction that God, whatever the subject is, is infinitely wiser than me. I'm operating with the conviction that the scriptures are completely sufficient for every challenge that faces the inner man. Listen, if you break your arm or your leg, you fall out of here on the way, number one, don't sue us. Number two, uh, go to the doctor, right? But I believe the Bible is sufficient for everything that plagues the inner man. Everything that should guide and govern the inner man. And so we talked about last week, one of the people uh, who, are, who are saved is those who love the truth. That's a descriptor of those who are saved. Verse 10 last week, those who love the truth. Those who don't love the truth are not saved is what verse 10 says. Now, what does it mean to love the truth? Listen, John 17, 17 answers that question. John 17, 17, it says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word, O Lord, is truth. And so what that means is there's no such thing as sanctification disconnected from the truth of the Bible. Let me put it to you as simple as I can. I'm going to put the cookies on the bottom shelf where the kids can get them, all right? Your potential for change is directly proportionate to your devotion to the Scripture. Little Bible intake 
little potential for change in your life. Your potential for change is directly proportional to your devotion to Scripture. Show me a person who has very little Bible engagement. I'll show you a person who's not really interested in becoming like Jesus. Uh, we study together as pastors, and so this week, Pastor David and I were studying. David's our Lebanon campus pastor, and Pastor David said, Brad, he said, he said, I think a Christian should love the Word of God like a bee loves honey. I said, David, I don't know what that means, but I like it. And we don't worship the Word, but the Word reveals to us the character and the ways of a God who's worthy of our worship. Look at verse 15 again. I keep looking at the clock. Clock's not on, praise God. Look at verse 15. It says, so then, brothers, because God chose you, because God pursued you, because He's sanctifying you, because you're believing in the truth, okay, so then, verse 15, Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, remember the context. They'd been deceived by false teachers who said, hey, you missed the rapture. You're going to have the wrath of God poured out in your life. And so what do you say? He said, hey, when you want you know, to push back against that fear that God's wrath, you know, don't, you know, don't just muscle up and I'm, a, I'm not scared. I'm going to be brave. He says, no, no, no. He says, hold fast to the traditions that were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. What's he referring to? The apostolic teaching revealed in the word of God. The scriptures. They didn't have all the Bible at that time, obviously. But the part they had, or he said, the part you've heard spoken from us, he said, hold fast to those things. And so when the world gets chaotic, when there's an increase in false teaching, when it seems to be people are falling away and wanting to have their ears tickled to use the language of the Bible and no longer endure sound doctrine is what the scripture says. He says, you steady your hearts, you stand firm, you're confident. How? By laying hold to the traditions that you were taught. And so what's the alternative? The alternative as to standing on the truth and holding fast to the tradition, the alternative is to try and be steadied by your emotions. Listen, if that's your plan for standing firm in a chaotic world, let me ask you a question. How's that working out for you? You see, our emotions are fleeting and subjective. But the Word of God is objective and true and faithful. And so when we allow our lives to be governed by Scripture, that's exactly what it looks like to live by faith. Listen, biblical faith is, is you make a decision based on what Scripture says when you don't even know the out, how that's going to turn out yet. Biblical faith is obeying the Bible in a situation when you have no idea how it's going to turn out. Listen, if you're not obeying the Bible, listen, that's not biblical faith. That's wishful thinking. I hope this goes well. I hope I get a good grade even though I didn't study. Help me, Jesus, right? And so scripture becomes the filter through which decisions are made. David promised, Psalm 19:11. David promised great reward to the one who obeys God's word. Jesus affirmed the one who loves him is the one who does what he commands in John 15, 14. How do we know what he commands? In the word of God. And so we hold fast by holding on to the truth of God's word that is objective. And then rise the false teaching. We know the truth of God's word. One of my favorite movies in recent years is Catch Me If You Can. 
How many of you have never heard that I have three food rules? Raise your hand if you've never heard I have three food rules. It only takes one. God bless you. All right? I got three food rules in life. You're thinking, hey, a guy who's chubby, how do you have any rules about food, right? Three food rules. Number one, I don't eat seafood. Like, right? I like, like anything that smells like the bait shop, I'm out. Number two, and this is weird, I don't eat any meat on the bone. And I'm well aware that every meat at one time was on a bone. I just don't want to know it or see it. <laughs> weird. I'll eat a hot dog before I eat something on the bone, praise God. Number three, I don't eat any salad that's mayonnaise-based. Fill in the blank. Pastor Kyle, when he used to hear, he said, one of the things his grandma would make growing up is bologna salad. I said, what is bologna salad? He said, open up a jar, throw up into it, that's bologna salad. <laughs> but I have also a movie rule. I can't get into any movie that has the potential or doesn't have the potential to actually play out in real life. So sci-fi, Star Wars, like I can't get into any of that stuff because I know there's no way in the world. Sometimes I watch something that's some crazy sci-fi thing and I'll just ask Tasha, is this an autobiography? Is this a true story? And I'm, nope, I'm out. Right? Well, the reason I love this movie, uh, Catch Me If You Can, with Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio, it's based on the true story of a guy named Frank Abagnale. Greatest con artist maybe who ever lived. He forged a degree from Harvard to get into law school and pass the bar exam on his third try. He forged payroll checks. He forged a pilot's license. Uh, he was a master con so much so that eventually the FBI hired him to help them fight against counterfeit. And in fighting against counterfeit, here's something interesting I learned through that movie and the study of that. Did you know this, that experts in the crime of counterfeiting money do not spend their time studying counterfeit money? They spend all their time becoming experts in real currency. They know it inside and out. They're masters of every detail of currency so that when false currency comes into their view, they can spot an inconsistency just like that because they've mastered the real thing. You say, what in the world has it got to do with the, the text here? Here's the reality. When you want to guard your heart against false spiritual teaching, you don't do by trying to learn every false teaching, everything that's out there that's not true. You do so by mastering the true currency of the word of God. So that when false teaching comes, you've studied it to know that's a lie. I'm going to hold fast to the truth. And in this world that's fleeting and faltering, I will stand firm on the traditions that have been laid down for me by the apostles and their teaching. That's the secret of stability in a world gone crazy. Is the objective, inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. And a real follower of Christ, their life will be governed by the word of God. Now, if that describes you this morning, this change on the inside, desire to please the Lord, it's not natural. And there's a desire to be governed by the word of God, not perfectly, but there's a pattern of that. And listen, take heart, when Jesus comes, he's coming for you. If that doesn't describe you this morning, coming here, then here's the good news of the gospel. It can describe you leaving here. And you can receive Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins. Would you bow your heads this morning?
with your head bowed this morning, I want to ask you a simple question. Are you sure that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And I'm not trying to put seeds of doubt in anyone's heart or mind today. I want you to leave here today with greater assurance of your salvation. Jesus said, I came so that you may know you have eternal life. Is there a pattern of wanting to please the Lord? Not perfect, but a pattern of wanting to please the Lord in your life? Change on the inside. Is there a desire to not be self-governed, but be governed by the Word of God? And if those things are true in your life, again, not perfection, but a pattern of your life, then I want you to be comforted and assured that you belong to Jesus Christ. You don't have to doubt your salvation any longer. But if those things are not true in your life, then right now where you're at, would you pray and receive Jesus Christ? I don't care if you made some kind of profession of faith when you're younger. I don't care if you walked an aisle at some point and cried. I don't care if you got baptized. I'm asking you, is the evidence of conversion in your life? Not the experience, the evidence. And if you say, hey, it's not, and the Word of God has exposed that today, or I'm not sure, don't leave here today unsure. Would you right now pray and receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Would you nail down a relationship with Jesus right now? Would you confess your sins and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Father, we're grateful that you're still saving people. We're grateful that the arm of the Lord is not too short to save anyone. God, we're grateful not only can we be saved because of what Jesus has done for us, we can know that we're saved when we belong to Jesus. And so, Lord, continue to confirm in our hearts your presence, your power, your promises, all those things. Help us to live out of these powerful truths today and live with the assurance that we belong to Jesus. And God, for every person today who walked in unsaved or self-deceived, Lord, save them Jesus now and for every life that's changed may Jesus get all the credit as he changes us from the inside out we pray in Christ's name Amen